You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I'm here with my very reluctant, sometimes co-host, sometimes guest, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Paul. I wouldn't say that I'm very reluctant, but I'm <laughs> feeling a little bit like uh, Ed McMahon or Sideshow Bob or something like that. When no other guest shows up, we just have to fill some time with, uh, with the uh, sidekick. Well, I'm like Hank. I'm like Hank from uh, the Larry Sanders show. Please don't go sideshow Bob on me. Yeah, no, I won't. I won't. It's it's not that no other <clears throat> guest shows up. It's that sometimes you get stuck in a trial all week and you don't have time to record with a guest. Well, I'm uh, still happy to be here, and I wouldn't say that I'm particularly reluctant. I'm just um, you know doing my job and uh, glad to talk to you. Well, you should be happy to be here today because um, some very interesting legislation was introduced in the Senate today, Um, Bill S-251, which does the thing that the Liberal government campaigned on, the thing that the Liberal government promised that they would do, and haven't done or taken any steps whatsoever to do, and that's get rid of mandatory minimum sentences. Well, it goes a lot further than that. It's uh, it it basically gives a judge to give uh, uh, gives a judge the discretion to order basically a sentence that's outside of the range that's set in the criminal code, um, in in a way that's um, I mean it's not realistic. It's not something that's going to be passed. Why would you? I I disagree. I think that a lot of people looking at this bill are going to see that it's a very smart, simple way of doing something that. I think the Liberals have been trying to say, has been too complex to figure out, and it will allow judges to do the right thing in the right cases. It's an interesting read. It's designed to embarrass the government. Um, It's uh, something that the Conservatives obviously would never do. It was introduced as a private member's bill in the Senate, Um, so um, an independent senator putting it in. And it is interesting because it just creates this broad discretion. A, A judge can... Under these circumstances, under any circumstances, basically, go outside of the range that's set in the criminal code for whatever offense. Um, and I, you know, obviously, it's it's a it's a talking piece. It's one of those things that's designed to. It's not nobody expects that to pass, Kyla. Well, I do, I do. You know what I'm going to say, and there have been this year, even in the last week, private members' bills that have passed. I don't know that there have been. Uh, I, don't, I don't really pay attention, but I know that lots of private members' bills were introduced over the years uh, with all sorts of really poorly thought out uh, ways to make drinking, driving uh, defenses uh, go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of those uh, bills were mostly really stupid, and they were laughed uh, out, of the, uh, out of the legislative assembly. They never got anywhere. And interestingly, now we see that the liberals have brought in a lot of those say, they provisions. Be, they became Bill C-46. They became Bill C-46, which is kind of fascinating. So, I mean, my, my point was that this isn't a bill that is designed to be passed. It's a bill that's designed to embarrass the government. It's a bill that's designed to force the government to react uh, and to defend their inaction. Um, they've had you know, action on other justice issues, that the unnecessary ones. 
uh, and then this necessary one where they were critical and rightly so as the courts have struck down mandatory minimums all over the place um, they you know they've they've done nothing so this is to try and force them to do something well and you know what if all this bill does is get them to do something mm. then great i mean i'm not going to be critical of somebody especially a senator who's stepping up to do something that's right and if you look at the preamble the the thought behind why this bill is being tabled is it's good it it recognizes that women, indigenous people, people with mental health issues, and people in poverty are often sort of pressured into situations of pleading guilty and given sentences that are disproportionate to their circumstances. Recent governments, though, have destroyed the preamble. I mean, the preamble has now become the most worthless thing in the world because the, the, it's a like a declaration on something, and then they go ahead in the legislation to do basically the complete opposite. Oh, we're going to make this bill. It's going to be constitutionally valid because of this, 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 and this. And really, it's just like a cynical uh, piece of garbage used to try and pull the wool over the eyes of the courts. Yeah, you see, you're confusing. And this preamble was right. You know, I agree with it. But I'm just saying that the, the concept of the preamble has now been, like, our justice minister and our, our current government have, have, have really put the... Uh, put the wooden spike in the heart of the preamble. It's kind of a, it's it, it, it's rubbish now. Well, I think you're confusing the preamble with sort of Jody Wilson's charter statement and even tabling legislation that says that a charter statement is mandatory. Yeah, well, it's all, it's all rubbish. And I, I, yeah. I, and, I, I call me cynical, but I'm cynical. Oh, sure. And there's MPs <laughs> that are, that are tweeting, <clears throat> you know, about the changes to C46 that were made by the Senate taking out the random breath testing and saying, well, in, in the charter statement, the justice minister said that this was constitutionally valid. And it's yeah, like, oh, I know. Okay. I know. Like, is this actually going to be their argument uh, in court? Like a, a <laughs> fundamental uh, misapprehension of uh, how the justice system works and how things play out in court. Well, well just the justice minister said it's valid, so it's going to be valid. <laughs> it's, well, yeah. Anyway. Um, that's fine. We can't expect, you know, MPs to know how uh, things play out in court all the time. I don't know how things play out in court all the time. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. <laughs> yeah. Rarely, if ever. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> that one time. Yeah. Um, well, you're never wrong in the office. You're oh, just thanks. wrong when the judge says you're wrong. Um, <laughs> the uh, No, I mean, I, 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 the preamble was lovely. Uh, the preamble explained the point. The preamble was, a, again, a political statement to try and humiliate the liberals, and frankly, they deserve to be humiliated. I mean, the, the situation of these mandatory minimums that uh, that were created by the Harper government, uh, you know, just ridiculous circumstances where people are going to jail. Um, obviously, they've been, you know, being struck down, but it shouldn't always have to be up to a court to strike it down. And you shouldn't have to go through all of the decisions from province to province to find out whether or not something's been struck down in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Although it's not necessarily where I would expect it to be struck down first, but whatever. Uh, been struck down in Ontario to figure out whether or not it still applies in B.C. Yeah, I, I mean, I I agree with you there. Um, I guess when I think about mandatory minimums, the thing that comes to mind most for me is all of the complaints about delay in the justice system. And I mean, the Senate had released their report. You were one of the witnesses that they in, um, interviewed or 
they had testify before them on their delay report, identifying all these different causes of delay. And mandatory minimums play such a huge role into that. They didn't want to hear the reason that I explained for the cause for the delays in impaired driving cases. They were hoping that I would just come and explain how bad immediate roadside prohibitions were. Right. Well, uh, I mean, the delay for impaired, you did. <laughs> the, the, impair, the delay for impaired driving is all occasioned as a result of a conservative bill that came into effect on July 1st. 2008 called C2 and that is has has blocked up the courts across this country and led to the delays that led to Jordan that led to all of it and it all comes down to that piece of legislation and nobody drew it back right I mean, I was talking. I was talking about this with the prosecutor in the trial that I'm doing right now, and he said the crown used to consider it a win if there was enough evidence to make him testify, um, yeah. because prior to C2 and prior to, to even when I was a lawyer, I guess, but I've I've heard tell from the defense bar um, that it used to be, you know, people would put their client on the stand. Their client would say, "Oh, I drank." you know, three beers over the course of four hours. There's no way I was over the limit. A toxicologist would come and say, nope, I've done the testing with him. There's no way. And then the judge would have a reasonable doubt and he'd be acquitted. For the lawyers who've been around or any judges who might be listening, I would be surprised if any do, but in our office we have an evidence bag with the front of a uh, breathalyzer 900A, uh, the actual metal front of it, and it's a Regina and Carter uh, evidence bag. It's a little artifact that we've got. <laughs> and Carter was the name of, of the sort of seminal case dealing with that defense known as evidence to the contrary. For anyone out there who is not a judge or a lawyer who's been around for a long time. We're off topic. We are. Kyla. Yes, sorry. So anyway, my point was mandatory minimums and delay in the justice system. And everybody likes to point the finger at impaired driving cases as a huge clog for delay. I mean, even again, going back to the Senate taking random breath testing out of C-46, one of the things that they identified was the way that impaired driving cases take up so much court time and take that away from other people that need to access and use the courts. And I, I maintain, and I, you probably agree with me on this, that mandatory minimums are a significant reason for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, of course, for obvious reasons. But I mean, for those of who haven't thought out the obvious reasons, you're going to run a trial if you've got a mandatory minimum. And you know the judge is not an unreasonable person. The judge would probably be their preference to to not sentence somebody to some harsh sentence. Um, the uh, You're going to run a trial because if you're convicted, the worst case scenario is the mandatory minimum. Right. And, and there's like nothing to lose. You run the trial, your client's going to get the mandatory minimum. Maybe if the readings are really high, they're going to get a slightly longer driving prohibition or a slightly higher fine. But usually that's the type of thing that they're willing to roll the dice over um, rather than, you know, plead guilty and definitely get a year. So if there's no downside, you just run the trial and you don't plead out or you don't, you know, go, you know, you don't negotiate something out. You just run the trial and you hope something comes up and it's amazing how often something comes up. Like, I'd say half the impaired driving trials, you walk away at 1045 was, and you're like, oh, well, that's that's done. Back to the office. I was just thinking something comes up or something goes down. And I was thinking yeah. of a police officer stepping back. There was one trial I was running. The police officer stepped back and fell out of the witness stand. And it was one of those dramatic TV moments. I, I was thinking of the uh, one I had where the witness didn't want to come back halfway through my cross-examination. Just oh, yeah, came yeah. into the courtroom and announced, I'm not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> So that was fun. Okay, there you go. 
I wasn't mean. Yeah. It wasn't me. Um, sure you weren't. Yeah. Okay. Sure you weren't. I, I admit nothing. Mm, yeah. um, that yeah. trial ended quickly. Anyway, moving, moving Mo- along moving to topic along. number six. Topic number six. Well, it's topic number two, really. Whatever. And that's self-driving cars. You and I have talked a lot about self-driving cars and how maybe they'll be the death of, well, this podcast and the death of driving law and the death of Acumen Law Corporation, where we work and the business you own. Do a whole own. lot of driving law. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, the point is that uh, law is an industry, and we're in a business. And, uh, you know, people sell breathalyzers, and that's an industry, and that's a business. And people sell training to police officers. And, and uh, there's uh, organizations we belong to, and, you know, people uh, train us, and we get specialty training on all sorts of different uh, defenses and things that are available around the world. And that's an industry. And we're part of an industry. We're there, you know, working. We're trying to do the best we can for our clients to get the best results for our clients. Uh, but it is still an industry. Now, what happens to that industry? Well, when media roadside prohibitions came out in BC, there was a bunch of, of uh, impaired driving lawyers who were running around saying, oh, you can't not give our clients a criminal charge. You know, you've got to charge these people. Otherwise, there's going to be carnage on the road. And I was I was wondering, what the hell are you, you know, how could you say that? How could you, on the one hand, uh, you know, say that you're out there defending uh, impaired drivers and on the other hand saying you're angry that they're not going to be charged with a criminal offense? Um, but weren't you, know, you one was, of those people, Paul? That no, was no, I was not. It was. Um, but you you're, you're painted that way. Yeah, but it was a very different point that I was making. And the different point was I didn't want people to lose their procedural fairness. I still wanted people to be... Uh, innocent until proven guilty. I don't think screeners should ever be used to punish people. And I still think that it's the onus should be on the Crown to prove the case. But those are all different issues. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want, I've never felt that my clients should get a criminal record for the driving that I've defended them for. Thankfully, very few have. Uh, but, you know, that was a completely different thing. You know, the one group seemed to be advocating for their survival as lawyers, and I was advocating for something else. Yeah, I I think that's a a misconception that a lot of people have uh, about the work that we do. I mean, you get, as I'm sure, as many comments on Twitter and Facebook as as I do. Um, My favorite, though, is when we're called ambulance chasers, because that refers to, like, personal injury lawyers. Something different. (laughs) Yeah, but that's okay. Um, You know, but uh, people who say, oh, I, you know, I hope you get a family member killed by a drunk driver, so you know what it's like, and then you'll never do this anymore. And I don't think they understand we're not advocating for drunk driving, and we're not advocating for lawyers lining their pockets we're we're consistently sticking our necks out for a fair system yeah anyway um so back to uh the industry of it so if uh you know self-driving cars come along uh what happens people are not going to be facing impaired driving charges at the same rate although my personal thought is that's not going to go away until the self-driving car is responsible for the driving and you're in the back seat. Um, so if it's a self-driving uh, taxi or a self-driving Uber or something like that, then I suspect that uh, at that point people are going to use it and I think a lot more people are going to drink. I think there's going to be people who are drunk all day long. 
Um, sure. Might might be very bad for the health of the. I might have nothing else to do but be drunk all day long. Well, that's true too. So <laughs> I mean, that could be the end of the. Uh, it could be the end of the drunk driving industry, and uh, a lot of people would say that's wonderful. And uh, I think it's a ways down the road, and I'm far enough into my career that I will have made my life defending uh, people who've been investigated and charged and. Uh, receive driving prohibitions for drinking and driving. But uh, what about that young generation of lawyers just coming out yeah, of well, law school? You, you keep threatening me. You keep saying, oh, you've got about 10 years till self-driving cars mm-hmm. take over. And I think today it got extended a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it might be 11 years, but I have been extending it. I've been saying 10 years now for three years. So let's talk all about it. What happened? So um, a self-driving Tesla, so a Tesla that had its autopilot mode on, according to the driver, or not driver, I suppose, uh, T-boned a police car at a high rate of speed. Hmm. I just love that it was a police car. But do we know if it was the Tesla's fault or was it the cop's fault? No, it was it was the Tesla's fault. It was according to the police. Well, yeah, also according to the police, and you know we see unfortunately lots of cases like that. I've had a number of clients who uh, struck police cars when they were then investigated for impaired driving, and, yeah. I, and I've never had one of them convicted. Well, there were also I think like a handful of cases about two years ago in the states where police officers were driving really badly. And they ended up um, charging the other driver in an accident with impaired driving. The accident was the officer's fault, and it was revealed later on that there was no impairment, uh-huh. that the officer was basically covering up their own crappy driving. So, But you think this Tesla crash into a police car is going to set back the uh, the advent, the, the push for self-driving cars? Yes, and for two reasons. One is sort of this, this notion of the, the thick blue line, you know, the Tesla attacked the police. And the police are going to be cautious. The thin, the thin blue line? It's a thick blue line. And the reason it's thick is because when there are police investigations for misconduct, when the police are in trouble, they stick together. That's your theory? That's my theory. Okay. I'm right. stealing this from Michael Spratt, okay? All right. I like Michael Spratt. He's a lovely man. The um, Very smart and uh, clever. The, See, he's smarter than me. <laughs> yeah. Well, he can certainly explain it probably better than you can. But in any event, the... Uh, the No, the, my, my point is, though, that um, whether or not this is going to set back the self-driving car, I mean, these are the bumps on the road. I... <laughs> Bumps on the road no. toward the toward the uh, eventual takeover of the self driving car, and I I'm not I don't think this is really a huge setback. It's uh, and besides, how how long do people remember these things? Maybe in the self driving car world, they'll remember it for a year or two, but the rest of us, you know, we're actively forgetting, in a you know better than we ever have. <laughs> yes, well, those who forget or doomed to repeat uh, anyway it looks to me i mean i saw a guy in a tesla on the east-west connector one night um and he was in the left-hand lane and uh he was reading a book uh, had his light on reading a book and uh, wasn't even looking at the at the road and uh driving at, at the speed limit nobody else does so this is the lower mainland of british columbia after all um but uh you know if that's the type of attitude that people have and maybe that's what happens when you've got a car that's got a self-driving mode, you just, you know, check out in your brain. And right. if that's the case, then there's going to be, it's going to be hard to to go through these bumps along the road and figure them out because they, they're counting on right now people being able to step up and stop the car from T-boning a police car. 
Well, how often already as drivers do we check out in our brains while driving when we have to pay attention to it? I mean, I was driving to the courthouse last week and I drove right through a red light. I'll admit it. I won't say where, so I won't get ticketed. (laughs) I drove right through a red light. I stopped at it and stared at it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And then I'm halfway through the intersection. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? Well, you should pay attention to your driving. Is what I you know. Should do. I know yeah. I should. I'm and and see, this is this is the thing. I don't. I don't think you can count on you know this notion that people just check out as as delaying self driving cars. I think you know people already just check out. So now that we're admitting bad driving things, okay. What'd you do? I was driving to the office. It was the evening. I can't remember. I was preparing for a trial or something, but I had to go back into the office, and it was like seven or eight o'clock, and I stopped at a set of lights two blocks from the office, and I fell asleep. And I felt, I don't know how long I was asleep, maybe just 30 seconds or a minute or something, but I was asleep. And uh, I woke up and continued to the office, and I managed to function. I I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. Okay, see, so you checked out too. You you checked out to maybe a much bigger degree. Well, I had a, although I did run a red light, had so police, very well, dangerous. I didn't, I didn't hurt anybody, but I could have drifted right into traffic. It was right, you know, Major Street in Vancouver. So yeah, wow. What I really want to know about this is whether the autopilot was actually on. Well, we'll find out, maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe. If you follow the story, you might find out. But, yeah. Uh, but I think Tesla's going to have to start releasing some of this stuff. It's interesting that Tesla is really, uh, like, struggling to survive right now. Their, uh, their share price has dropped. Their Tesla Model 3 uh, that are being delivered, there's nothing but complaints about them. Uh, it'll be interesting to see a little is while that the ago. Cheap, is that the cheap alternative? Yeah, yeah. To I mean, it's a great looking car, but people are complaining about all sorts of problems with it. The bumper is the wrong color, doesn't match the car, uh, you know, and, and little electronic issues, other right. problems with them. I'm sure they're wonderful cars and I'm sure they'll sort it out, but uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, even uh, Elon Musk was joking about, um, you know, Tesla might be bankrupt in six months. Oh, well, haha. Well, I, you know, I, I'm no economist, nor do I think I'm an expert in any of, in any of that. But I, I wonder if a lot of the value associated with Tesla's stock prices had to do with the cachet of owning a Tesla. And as soon as you create a car that's accessible to the masses at a price point that's accessible to the masses, maybe. But they, they're, all their previous cars, they bought, sold all of their cars at a loss. They're selling their cars at a loss with the well, idea that's that... that's a stupid business model. Well, no, but the, the intention is that they will gain such ground and, and refine their manufacturing and uh, and come up with better models and more models and, and get to the point where it becomes a profitable business. It's not, you know, the, the most businesses don't make money in the first two years, right? So Sure, but he's also off, you know, launching things into space, which isn't cheap. Well, that, that's probably going to make money. Like right now, because it's reliable, as reliable as any other rocket going. Sure, and it's not like you can call up NASA and be like, hey, I need a quick trip to space, NASA. They don't even remember how to build rockets there anymore. All the old old engineers are dead. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Don't you just go through every day waiting until you can sarcastically say thanks, Obama? No, I don't. Okay. I, I miss him. I think he was a <laughs> I do too. great president. I'm I think disa- it's funny the I way was people... disappointed in things by him, but, you know, looking people back... People blame I'm... Obama for all sorts of things, and I think it's funny. I don't. Okay. Well, let's move on. All right. Obama let's move blamer. on. Actually, I want to move back 
because you you shifted me away from this, and I think it's a very important thing to talk about about this bill um, from the Senate today. Uh, I, I think it's incredibly important that S-251 deals with mandatory orders of prohibition. So in the criminal code, if you're convicted of an offense, you can get a mandatory order of prohibition. You're convicted of, like, certain violent crimes or firearms offenses, you can get firearms prohibitions. But when it comes to driving offenses, you can get mandatory driving prohibitions. Yeah, and it's different. Um, it's actually a very bizarre thing that we wanted to ch- to uh, do a charter challenge to because your mandatory driving prohibition for an impaired driving conviction is different in Alberta than it is in BC because of this uh, section of the code that lets them enable um, that section themselves on their own legislation uh, and permit people to be able to get a driver's license and, and drive uh, with an interlock in their vehicle. And we don't have that in BC. In BC, we rely on the provision of the criminal code that that stipulates a one-year driving prohibition if you're convicted of impaired driving or driving with a blood alcohol concentration over 80 milligrams or refusing uh, without lawful excuse to provide a breath sample. And um, it seems, I mean, it... it, it <laughs> It wasn't always so. It used to be a three-month driving prohibition, and then six hundred dollar fine, and well, three hundred dollar fine, and six hundred dollar fine. And it was mothers against drunk driving legislating or uh, legislating, and they might as well be um, uh, lobbying and uh, and creating this prohibition. And, and there's lots of circumstances where a one-year driving prohibition is really out of line. A person provides a sample of 110 milligrams and 100 milliliters, no other symptoms. You can be convicted of over 08. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably not going to be convicted of impaired driving. And that's a one-year driving prohibition. Yeah, now, or... Or you get an immediate roadside prohibition, and you get a three-month driving prohibition. And that's the discretion of the police officer. So if you have an accident, not your fault, you're rear-ended. You're in an accident. The police are supposed to arrest you, detain you, take you back to the detachment, have you blow... If you blow over 80 milligrams, you can blow 90 milligrams or 100 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood, you can get a one-year driving prohibition. Well, it's That's really, mandatory it's, in it's, the code. It's really rare in BC, though, to see charges at 90 or 100. I mean, I know we've had 100. 100 isn't that rare, but 90 is almost never. And in, in other provinces, though, they charge people oh, with 90. Oh, I defended a guy in Alberta with 90-90. Yeah, I defended, I, like, I defended you, a guy in Ontario but, with 90 How did they charge approve this? Okay. I don't understand. Yes. There's, a, there's rounding error. There's... There's, you know, calculating problems. error. There's, there's so much we room that, for error. That one where the instrument was left in calibration mode, so it wasn't truncating anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've seen actually just so many errors on those instruments that mm-hmm. it's uh, and problems with them that I, I, I don't trust them myself at all, um, except the one in my office. <laughs> um, but uh, even that, <laughs> the, I'm suspicious the, the of the Franken machine because I think we've time. gathered parts from various ones that we've ordered and sort of Frankensteined it oh, together the, to yeah, one working our, one. Our Intox, Intox ECIR. <laughs> yeah, no, we we put that one together uh, out of out of other ones that we got on eBay because you know, nobody will sell them to us. Speaking of the drug driving industry, the uh, manufacturers of those uh, approved instruments will not sell them to defense lawyers because they don't want us to figure out what's wrong with them. And you'd think if they were smart. Uh, they would do that. The guy who um, originally brought the BAC Data Master 
to North America. He bought the patents from the, the uh, national patent. Yeah, he bought he bought the uh, all of the design uh, from the uh, from the Germans who invented it, and um, he brought it and he let defense lawyers use it. He'd sell it to defense lawyers. He wanted them to have an opportunity to try and pick it apart, and if there was a problem, he wanted to to identify it. And that makes perfect sense to me because if you're going to be sued down the road, mm-hmm. um, you'd like to be able to show that you at least did some due diligence. Well, also, if you have a product that then defense lawyers identify a flaw with, you can correct the flaw, sell a newer model to the police, and you've just... Cash in in yeah, the drunk driving exactly. industry. Make more money off drunk drivers. That's the, uh, you know, the way of the breathalyzer manufacturers. Yep. Except for Drager. Except for Drager, why? Don't they just do it as a hobby? Oh yeah, they do. Well, they don't do it as a hobby, but they do it as a. They know they lose on it. They don't make money on it. Right. Yeah. Although I think Drager is going to be behind a lot of the saliva screening devices that we're getting. Well, we'll see if any of them work. But Drager, <laughs> I mean, they they are a huge company that does gas. You know, designs instruments to test gas, and if anybody's right. going to know how to do it, they're going to be the ones who know how to do it. But I have to say. Our dragger alco tests that we have in the office are not perfect, and I blew into one in Germany, and the uh, the mouthpiece didn't seal into it, mm-hmm. and I had to repair it there for the police. So <laughs> I was like, "Hey, you're like the, broken German." I know the I know in my broken. Hey, you have a problem there. Das ist kaputt. Ein Moment bitte. Das ist kaputt. It's done. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't it. speak German, but that's, I know the word kaputt. Yeah. Well, I put. Uh, I had to. I had to, I had to uh, reinstall the mouthpiece for them, and they were angry that I touched their their uh, approved screening device. As all police officers are. Yes. Don't touch don't my touch approved it. screening device. Don't no. don't put your hands on it. Yeah. Like, what yeah. are you gonna do to it? Yeah. I put my hands on it and fix the damn thing. <laughs> um. Okay. So. This bill would get rid of the mandatory order of prohibition, and I think as far well, it doesn't get rid of it. The judge is, well, the judge can just do what they want, it but makes it, it still not exists. So mandatory in the, it still exists in the criminal code. It's just the it's judge. It's the can mostly do mandatory they want. order yeah. of prohibition. Yeah. yeah, but I wonder if we have something like this. If you have a bill and it passes, and and you get a judicial discretion to not impose a one-year driving prohibition to do something lesser or no driving prohibition for the single mother living on the remote access reserve who has six kids that she needs to drive around her community um, where there's no public transport, you know, like imagining the most, you know, extreme hypothetical possible. Um, It's hardest to get home from the bar. Well, yeah, it is. It's minus 40 in the winter. You have to buy your alcohol and take it home to drink. That's what I do. Anyway, if if that discretion exists under the criminal code, what happens, if anything? Is there a potential to challenge the mandatory one-year driving prohibition, three-year on a second offense, and lifetime on a third prohibitions under the Motor Vehicle Act? Oh, well, you always supr- throw these surprise questions to me, Kyla. This is hard, Paul. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it does nothing. <laughs> I don't think it does anything to amend the the uh, the requirements under the Motor Vehicle Act. So in BC, if you're listening outside of BC, if you're convicted of a, a number of criminal code offenses, including a absolute discharge uh, for dangerous operation of a motor vehicle, you still get a one-year driving prohibition automatic by operation of law in Section 99, I think it is, of the Motor Vehicle Act. Mm-hmm. And um, 
On a second offense, you get three years. Uh, and on a third offense, uh, within a specific period, it's a lifetime driving prohibition, and then you can apply to have it reduced after, I think, five years or something, 10 years. I'm not sure. But... The, the provision's really weird. It actually makes no sense because it says at one point that you can apply after three years, but then they're under section, and it refers to a different section, like two something. And then you go to that section and it says you can't bring the application for five years. Yeah. So is it three or is it five? I think it's... uh, Or you schedule it two years in advance? I think it's just designed to recognize the computer program that they've got at ICBC um, and the superintendent's office. Right. But it makes no sense if you're like reading the legislation. The law is often what the computer program will facilitate. It will not facilitate even issuing you a driver's license in that period of time. I mean, at some point in time, I guess, you know, we'll have a case and we'll sort it out in court. What did they mean? The the city of Vancouver, the law is what's on their website. Yeah. Yeah. That's how bylaws work. Well, that's how they think it it does. (laughs) It's what's on the website. Well, can you give me any support for why that's the law? It's what's on the website. Yeah. Or could you, could you point me to say that the actual text of the bylaw, it's on the website. Where? Yeah. (laughs) Bylaw offenses. That'll be a good podcast one day because I was having an interesting discussion about speeding and bylaw offenses, but that's another topic for another day. Are we done, Kyla? We're no. supposed to talk about cannabis uh, in the uh, last time we said we were going to talk about cannabis next time. And I you know, wrote a, but you I... wrote a uh, blog post about cannabis, and now it's published everywhere. I did, yes. I looked at the entire Cannabis Act proposed by the BC government. was passed. It's passed third reading, and it just needs to be enacted by royal assent now. Um, it uh, And I broke down every single offense in the Act. I'm sure you didn't read what I wrote because it was long. I read a lot of it. I'll read the rest when I get a chance. But it does connect back to driving because, like I always say, everything in some way relates back to driving law. There are all sorts of offenses, provincial offenses created. (laughs) Do you you say that? I do. That's the whole point of this podcast is driving law is driving the law. Okay. All right. So now I understand. There's two meanings to your... Yes, it's a pun. Okay. We talked oh, about this in the first one. Oh, well, I'm too dense to yeah, figure that out. It's fine. Your memory is... It's, it's a okay. little Ed McMahon thing going on here. Yeah. Um, anyway, there's a number of cannabis offenses that are provincial. That's really interesting because for a number of reasons. First of all, can, can the province, you know, make these driving-related offenses outside the Motor Vehicle Act? It's not road and highway safety in, in that, you know, piece of legislation that's supposed to deal with that. But also, it creates its own offenses to have cannabis in a motor vehicle, smoking cannabis while driving, um, a cannabis accessible to passengers, all sorts of various offenses in relation to what you're doing with cannabis in a vehicle. There's... No offenses they're adding to the Motor Vehicle Act for being over a THC limit or being impaired by marijuana. That's all administrative prohibitions. So it's really weird that they're breaking it up this way, I think. That is weird. Weird. Anyway. (laughs) Sure. Yes. I I mean, I don't know why they would do it, but I don't, I often look at the logic of government and well, my thinking, I mean, my thinking behind it, and you, you can look at the other offenses in the act as well, and it would take, you know, the entire podcast for me to list all of them. But Please they, don't. No. Please um, don't. They mostly mirror the 
federal offenses that the federal government is creating under the Federal Cannabis Act. So they mirror um, things like uh, like distribution and, and possessing illicit cannabis, all, all sorts of things like that. And there are federal uh, offenses in relation to the transportation of cannabis and cannabis in vehicles. I think there's going to be almost nobody charged. I think nobody's going to get charged with a federal offense, that's for sure. I think it's yeah. all going to be those administrative offenses. I think that's the provincial government's whole idea. The last thing anybody wants is more cases going into court and because court costs money they can't can't control the outcome they can't control the result they can't give instructions to adjudicators like they can in their own internal mm-hmm. tribunals and the fines that adjudicators can give are pretty high under the cannabis act they can thousands of dollars it's the creepy tribunalization i've been complaining about it for years it is but you know what lets them get away with it driving law. Yes, of course. Because it's the immediate roadside prohibition scheme back in Sibia when the challenge to the province's drunk driving legislation, when they said, no, 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 this is federal powers, this is criminal law, they said, no, it's uh, road and highway safety in the province. Well, this is just property and civil rights in the province. I probably told you before, and maybe I've said it on this podcast, that I wrote a blog post explaining how how the Sibia could be used by the city to legislate, to create Things such as dispensaries, and that's what happened in BC. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was a, uh, a cannabis advocate who phoned me and said, "Can we? Can can is this really true?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." Can I get a legal opinion about it? I said, "It's right there. It's on. The, it's on our blog. <laughs> I don't have go time. ahead. Go ahead and use it. <laughs> read my blog. Um, read the blog." And uh, and they managed to persuade the city to do it, and and that's basically how we've seen. Uh, you know this huge step in uh, in BC. So ultimately, you know, I'm one of those little cogs in the in the wheel toward uh, cannabis uh, decriminalization, legalization. Yeah, well, it. I mean, but so is Sibia. It was that driving law case. You're right. Yeah, it's, see, driving law has has driven um, cannabis law, and I think all the case was wrong. I think in my mind, wrongly decided, all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. But nobody's listening to me. About sure, that. but at least the Chief Justice at the time didn't get her way. On Sibia. I'll yeah, just I say know. that. Yeah. Although, although she also said that the tribunal would be a court of competent jurisdiction for the purposes of granting charter remedies, which would mean we could make all sorts of, you know, 8, 9, 10, A, 10B violations and ask for 24, 2 remedies. And they declined to do that anytime. So it is. That's true. Yeah. So charter rights are eliminated by tribunals, uh, if you didn't notice that. Uh, yes. So it happened in BC. They slip that past you. But interestingly, there is some protection for charter rights, in a weird way, in this cannabis legislation. So there are provisions that allow for the police to obtain warrants um, if they believe any of the um, sections of the Cannabis Act, provincially, are being violated. The police may, on reasonable and probable grounds, apply for a warrant that will allow them to search any place um, to look for evidence related to the offense they believe is occurring. But it's their tribunal. And so they can just... No, no, they can apply. They have to apply to a justice. I know. But after that, they can prosecute you under they can their administrative prosecute tribunal. prosecute you administratively. So you'll have no remedy. Right. And you won't even get to cross-examine on the... Probably warrant. not, no. Yeah, so forget it. It's, well, it's but rubbish. you know what? The, the legislation doesn't <laughs> say... The legislation, though, doesn't say that they have to choose. 
It could end up similar to how we have ADPs and criminal charges going together, where you have somebody getting a criminal, or or not a criminal, a quasi-criminal offense under the provincial legislation and a charge in court that's dealt with there, as well as an administrative penalty. And there's authority as well, recent authority in British Columbia, not driving-related, actually, yes, driving-related, um... Judge Rideout in my case of Wong, where the the argument was um, about being able to dispute an administrative action and and not getting the opportunity to dispute it before it came into effect, and the rule against collateral attack. And at the same time that I was arguing that, he was considering his decision in the Samji case, which was that multi-million dollar cross capital magic money lady fraud, and whether the severity of the administrative consequences was so significant that it prevented a prosecution of any offense. Your case doesn't have the same effect as that one. That case, actually, um, he lays out basically relying on the principles from Sivia that they could they could do it. They, they could do could, it. Yeah, I, was, I remember I was contacted yeah. by some news organization. But when I was that. arguing, Wong, he said, well, you should watch out for my decision on Samji because I'm dealing with something very similar here. But it wasn't a collateral attack. So it, I still she think did he, argue collateral attack. No, but I think he was wrong. And I think the characterization in your case, I, I still don't accept it as a collateral attack. It's a jurisdiction issue. No, I, I mean, I'm with you, obviously, but um, so it goes. Yeah. Um, anyway, the uh, so that's going to be very interesting to see how the Cannabis Act offenses play out, how they play out in relation to the federal law, and how... A driving law case uh, that went all the way from the BC Supreme Court to the Supreme Court of Canada lays the foundation for this maybe to actually achieve decriminalization of marijuana altogether, at least in British Columbia. Well, I mean, it's it led to it on the, you know, in BC. Yeah, but now we have the legislation. But now we have well, the federal legislation is motivated as a result of the fact that people in British Columbia have been widely accepting of dispensaries. And and now we've got this matching two uh, pieces of legislation, federally and provincially, with all the same offenses. And the provincial government is the one going to be responsible for prosecution, and they're just going to opt to prosecute under the provincial legislation every time. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I actually think it's fantastic. I know a lot of people were crying foul when... The BC Cannabis Act was introduced, but if you if you break it down and you think about it, and how other things that have been designed this way have been administered in BC, and the state of the law, I think it's a great thing. I think it lays the groundwork for separation, uh, BC separating from the rest of Canada, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know I think we're we're getting there now. The the federal government is walking away from their responsibility. The courts have said, oh, you can legislate in the federal realm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're just going to... BC says yeah. they don't want a pipeline. The feds just buy one. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, people have asked me for years whether or not I'd... Uh, yeah, the feds just bought one. And so it feels like we're like just a little bit closer to being Argentina today now that our federal government's taking over the distribution. And, uh, don't uh, cry for me, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> no, don't. No. No. Different issue. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, different Argentinian government. Anyway. <laughs> well, I don't know my Argentinian history. That's my only Argentinian reference. Well, then perhaps you should be quiet about it. <laughs> this is my podcast, darn it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, everybody's going to want to tune out of your podcast at this point when they've realized your it's lack good, of knowledge of it's... Argentinian history, yeah. uh, particularly in the nationalization of the oil industry. 
So thank you very much for listening to. Oh, sorry, that's your. <laughs> well, you want you want to take over the podcast, no, so. No. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Paul, for reluctantly co-hosting slash appearing as my guest. And revealing on, your lack of knowledge yes, of South American history on driving law yet again. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and if you want to reach us, uh, you can call us at Acumen Law Corporation. At 604-685-8889 is our Vancouver office. You can I'm not going to spend all night listing all our other numbers. You can find them online at acumenlaw.ca or vancouvercriminallaw.com. Yes, thank you for having me on once again. Okay, and tune in next week and the week after. In the coming weeks, we're going to have some very interesting guests. More interesting than me. Yes, <laughs> people more interesting than Paul. Possibly some uh, very vocal uh, marijuana advocates and driving safety advocates. And I won't spoil who because I want you to come back next week. Yeah.